Welcome to This Week in Photo. Bandwidth for TWIP is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com and Squarespace dot com, the fast and easy way to publish a high quality website or blog. For a free trial and 10% off your new account, go to Squarespace dot com forward slash TWIP. This Week in Photo is also supported by the TWIP podcast app for the iPhone and iPod Touch. It's available now on iTunes. For more information, head over to thisweekinphoto.com. Some found Ansel Adams images might be bogus. DSLRs swing and tilt, and Chris Marquardt joins in to talk backup. It's Tuesday, August 3rd, 2010, and this is TWIP. Welcome back to TWIP, your weekly source of photographic inspiration. I'm your host, Frederick Van Johnson. And joining me today on the show are Steve Simon, Joseph Lenaski, and Ron Brinkman. Hey, guys. Hello. Hello. Hey, this is going to be a good show. First, uh, I just want to talk to touch base with each one of you because each one of you guys have something crazy going on. Steve, you got a workshop coming up really soon that's where where is that in in hawaii or something like that where is it yes as a matter of fact it's in maui the maui photo festival and i'm really excited i i was in hawaii i've been to hawaii once before and and that was uh on oahu honolulu the main island so i've never been to maui um i understand last year was the inaugural um event uh the maui photo festival and it Mm -hmm. uh proved to be Apparently a very big success. So I'm I'm really looking forward to uh, to being in Maui, albeit in the end of August, August 24th to the 29th or whatever it is. And uh, it's it's not February, which might be a better time to be there. But <laughs> but it's gonna be, it's gonna be really cool. They got a lot of a lot of good people there, and I'm gonna be doing a workshop and an aperture workshop and a lecture and and I'll be talking to people in the lobby, and it's gonna be fun. That's cool. That's cool. And we're I know I, I sent out a newsletter, or the, the This Week in Photo newsletter went out last week, and it had a little highlight of that in it. Um, but for the folks that didn't, aren't subscribed to the newsletter, which you can do at the website, where where should they go to uh, to find out more about that workshop? Uh, they can just uh, type in MauiPhotoFestival.com, and, and they'll get there, and they'll see all the stuff that's going on. So, uh, yeah, I hope that... Uh, There'll be some TWIP listeners in attendance. Cool. All right. Cool. Make sure if you, if TWIP listeners, if you are or planning to go, or if you happen to go, please, please be sure to give Steve a hard time when you're there. And <laughs> please do. And please tease do. him somehow. Um, I'm also, tired of getting, I usually get the questions like, you know, what is Frederick really like? Oh, him? my God. Yeah. And how old is he, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, also, as you just heard, Mr. Ron Brinkman is on the show and freshly back from his travels to South America. And he made it back in one piece. Ron, Thank goodness. Tell us, first of all, for the folks that didn't hear that you were going and how, you know, you were worried about not coming back. <laughs> surviving. <laughs> surviving. Coming back, not in a pine box. What, uh, why were you worried? And then get into, <laughs> get into what, if, if those worries were founded. Well, see, here's the thing. So, me and a buddy who had some time free were trying to figure out where to go, and we weren't finding something that we both could agree on. And somewhere along the lines, I saw something about tallest waterfall in the world, which is in Venezuela. And so I proposed it, and he said, great, and we booked the tickets. 
And then we started doing research on the country. It turns, <laughs> it turns out that Venezuela is, uh, particularly Caracas, is one of the five most dangerous cities in the world outside of a war zone. And, um, you know, an interesting place. It's, it's actually a pretty messed up place. Um, so yeah, there was there were definitely some security concerns. I have never I have never been in a country even close to where the number of times I had local people come up to me and just tell me to be careful, like with really worried looks on their, on their faces, like so you're, you're just traveling around by yourselves. You, you should be careful. Oh, <laughs> uh, wow. I mean it's, it's it's messed up from the get go because you know you can't you can't really afford to go there uh, if you're paying the official exchange rate. So immediately you have to start buying money on the black market which is always a good sign mm. and uh and then yeah it's just you know it's uh apparently random kidnappings and muggings and did nothing you, happened to us i was but, gonna say did you have any close calls did you get like um, any weird looks you know or anything there was you know the problem is of course you're you're hyper aware at that point and especially hyper aware about pulling out a camera which is kind of a bummer because you know there were definitely times where i would just pull out my little point and shoot instead of my uh my dslr just because it didn't feel comfortable waving an expensive camera around. Yeah, but um, we didn't have any problems really. But we heard plenty of stories. I mean, there was uh, uh, an Austrian couple we went hiking with who told the story about the night before they uh, had woke up at three in the morning in the hotel room that we almost took, and uh, there was somebody in the room going through their stuff wearing <laughs> a mask. Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> hey, that's a photo op, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And uh, yeah, it was just odd. I mean, I guess they you know they turn on the lights and there's somebody in there, and and and, and it was you, you know you think these things we could go down in some fashion or another, but it was. I mean, I guess the burglar was like shh, shh, shh quiet, you know, like like, and then all he was like dinero, dinero, like please be quiet and give me money. And he, and he wasn't apparently armed, but you know what do you do at that point? So I guess they gave him a little bit of money, and he crawled back out through the skylight that he'd come in through. Oh, man. Well, I mean, uh, on this trip, aside from all the, you know, the negative adventures, did you get any good shots? Did you get that world's tallest waterfall and do a long uh, exposure I, I, of it? I actually, I did get a, a pretty nice photo of the world's tallest waterfall. It was, we, we got there mid-afternoon and, you know, it's like a four-hour uh, canoe ride up uh, up river. Not canoeing, there was a upward motor in the back and so we get there in the afternoon the light was okay but nothing great and i took a few photos and then we you spend the night in this sort of camp area sleeping in hammocks and i woke up kind of with the crack of dawn before anybody was awake i'm like well i should go see what the what the falls look like you know this time of the morning so i hiked on over just like a little five minute hike over to where there was a viewpoint and it was just perfect you know the morning sun was just hitting the the wall that the falls were coming down and lighting it up and this great golden light and you know i'm like shooting all kinds of photos so it's really amazing the difference you can get when you get you know just perfect lighting in the morning so, yeah, so my my advice to everyone is wake up early all right so speaking of that advice overall from the trip would you advise the the twip listeners to head to venezuela or would you say you know maybe choose a different photography spot it would take a certain kind of person that uh, <laughs> is okay with that type of traveling, I would say. James are, Bond, somebody you know, like that. Uh, you just, you know, you, you have to have traveled a fair bit to understand that. Because it was just hard traveling in general. There's not a great infrastructure for it. And, uh, you know, just getting around. And, and, you know, we didn't speak Spanish either, just barely. So uh, it'd probably be a little easier if somebody spoke fluent Spanish. But. Uh, yeah, it was it was hard traveling between the security concerns and the infrastructure stuff, and even just the changing money issues and all that. And, and you know, like ATMs don't work down there, so you have to show up 
with enough cash to survive your trip, which means you're shoving money into, you know, Ugh. zippers and wallets and whatever other orifices you can think of. And <laughs> oh, man. I don't oh, know, man. You know, Club this- Med or sandals or something. <laughs> that's crazy. Uh, that's yeah, a- I mean, I'm glad I went, but I was I was done with it. I was, I was very glad to be heading home when it was all said and done. And we saw a lot of really cool stuff, and I will be getting photos put up i'm i've been wading through them now for the last couple of days but um yeah, it was cool but it was definitely challenging all right well you're gonna have to get yeah. some of those posted on the on the this week in photo website so yeah, maybe we could uh, post uh, ron's travel agent information as well <laughs> all right and then also on the show and who's who's about to embark on a cross-country adventure with some very interesting camera gear that we'll we'll hear about in a few minutes is Mr. Joseph Lenasky. Joseph, you're you're doing the road trip thing, kind of like the uh, uh, like Chris and Beth Finwick did on Route 66 a while back, right? Well, you know what? It's entirely their fault that I'm doing this. I was seriously planning on flying and just shipping all of my gear across the country, and then after listening to their uh, to your interview with them, I thought, you know what? I, I think I'm going to drive it. Why not? I'm not in a rush. I've got the time. And what a better way to spend the, the trip over. Just go slow and shoot all the way. That's cool. going to be fun. Now, have you done this before? Have you driven across the country? I did drive across the country once, but it was a cannonball run. It was trying to make it to the West Coast from there, actually from South Carolina to California before Christmas, and also outrunning a storm that was about a half a day behind us. So oh. that was not a fun trip. That was just a, you know, literally a cannonball run. But this one is going to be much more leisurely. Right. So uh, you're, you're, How long do you have? Uh, as long as I want, really. I'm planning on a week, but um, you know, I may take more. I'm just basically going to stop wherever I like along the way. I have some. I have a you know pretty specific route that I'm going to go, and I have a few stops on there that I definitely want to make. But otherwise, it's just going to be slow and go, and you know, see what I find and stop when I want to. All right, very cool. Wow. What, what's what's the route? More so basically, mo- yeah, southern route, mostly along Highway 40. If actually, if you go to the uh, to my blog, confessionsofatravelljunkie.com, I've got on there the basic route, and it's kind of cool. I've built a map in Google Maps that has the route, and I've left the map open for anybody to add content to it. So you can go in there, and if you have a favorite photo spot or a favorite restaurant or hotel, you can actually add it to it, and then I'll see that. And it's been really popular. The map has got nearly 3,000 views so far. Oh, Jesus, really? 3,000? 2,741 as of uh, of this very second. And, yeah, and people have been adding a few photo spots on there. And I've been getting emails and comments on the blog saying you've got to stop here. And so I've been adding some in myself as well. That is A lot of these – yeah, it's really cool. A lot of these I'm not going to be able to get to. They're too far off the route. But um, one of the first, like, really beautiful spots I'll be going to is uh, White Sands, New Mexico, which I'm really looking forward to. Wow. All right, so just for folks to just, if you want to add to Joseph's trip, confessionsofatravelljunkie.com, right? That's right. It's the first entry right now. Uh, by the time this goes on the air on, uh, up on iTunes, it may be the second one down, but it'll be right there. And, yeah, just click on the map, and you can edit it, add to it, zoom in around it, and you know, put anything in there you like. And you promise to, if they put something on that map, you promise to stop there and take a photo, right? Well, if it's along the route. <laughs> there are a couple things. You have like, like 3,000 entries on there. It's like six hours off trip. I'm like, you're not going to make it up there. But, uh, yeah, if it's along the route, absolutely. All so, right. Very yeah. cool. All right. Uh, before we continue, let's give a quick nod to our sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace.com. They're the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. And like we mentioned on previous shows, they've announced social widgets. And they've got a native Twitter widget that allows you to add in multiple Twitter accounts because a lot of people 
like us, have uh, multiple Twitter accounts floating around. And you can filter what shows up by keyword. You can customize the look and feel of the design to match your site. Um, they've got a native Flickr widget, Flickr widget that also allows for multiple accounts. So if you've got your personal account and you know maybe something for family and you want to somehow mix those together, you can bring those in and also vary the layout so that it matches your blog or website. And then a native RSS widget for a site that doesn't, you know, any any site on the web basically or any blog on the web or most of them generate RSS feed. So if you're using something else, some other service that generates an RSS feed, you can pull that feed in and display that on your site. So all that leads into you having a more dynamic presence that's populated by other services. So you can keep your your website looking fresh and ready to go. And um, if you like a free trial of Squarespace, just head over to squarespace.com forward slash TWIP. You don't need a credit card you, to try it out. Just build your website, play around with it, play around with the service, see how it feels. And if you decide that you like it and you want to keep the website, you'll get 10% off when you enter the offer code TWIP. That's squarespace.com forward slash TWIP. Okay, let's jump into the news. First up is in the last show, I think it was, we mentioned or we were going to mention, no, someone had tweeted it during the show. We didn't get a chance to mention it. Thank goodness that, uh, someone had found $200 million worth of Ansel Adams negatives at a garage sale, which immediately made me feel bad because I don't go to garage sales. <laughs> but, and I'm driving around the day. I'm like, look at that garage sale over there. I should stop in there. <laughs> but now I feel vindicated because apparently the the photos weren't by Mr. Adams. They were by Mr. Uncle Earl. Uncle Earl or somebody <laughs> like that. So, I mean, did you guys get a chance to uh, – Steve, I'll throw it to you first. Did you get a chance to look at the story? I mean, I'm sure you've, you know, you've run across it. What do you, what do you think about this? Uh, yeah. I mean, I feel the same way uh, that you did. I mean, you know, we really need to spend more time at grass sales. <laughs> but when I looked at it initially, I thought, well, $200 million, that sounded uh, – like a, a large sum, even for an Ansel Adams fine like that. I think there was some spin on that. But then when I read about that, oh, maybe they're not uh, Mr. Adams' work, but there's somebody else's, it all seemed a little odd and fishy to me. And I think a lot of the people that we're reading about in the story have their own agendas going on. Um, it looks as though, and maybe you guys correct me, that uh, in the end uh, it appears that maybe they are not Ansel Adams' uh, photos but but that's still to be determined and uh, i think they're going to sort of figure that out oh it's still up in the air i thought it was uh it was determined that they were not his no i as far as i understand and you guys correct me um it looks as though they may not be um but again uh the pe- the the people that represent uh the person that owns them um feel that uh uh, they still might be, and and I guess the the and I I, I think we've even had uh, Frederick. You've interviewed um, Ansel Adams' grandson. Who's, yeah, uh, quite yeah, an amazing guy. He's great. I mean, he was. Yeah, I interviewed him wow, a couple of years ago. Michael Adams, and he lives um, you know relatively close to where I am right now. And I get the sense that he's got a lot of credibility. But yeah, um, we'll see how this thing shakes down. Um, if it's Uncle Earl's, you know, it's probably not worth two hundred million. Uh, but he was a good photographer, apparently, from the uh, from the sounds of it. And I guess, you know, like we see a lot today, uh, people are inspired by photographers out there and they tend to go to similar spots and want to take their, their own version of a famous shot. And, and maybe that was what 
partially was going on. But we also know that uh, Ansel Adams photographed in places that many, many photographers were also at. So I imagine images were somewhat familiar. Yeah, um, from but you know, you know what I was thinking? I was thinking the, because the story got so much play, this two hundred million dollar, you know, are they Ansel Adams images or not? Those images that may not have been worth anything are going to be worth something now, just because oh, those were those fake Ansel Adams shots. <laughs> I want some of that. Uh, you know, any any kind of publicity is good publicity, I guess, and I think that's very true. That you know, there's there's they're going to have this sort of air of mystery about them, and that'll probably. Increase their uh, their value at least to a certain extent. Yeah, absolutely. So, right, uh, you know, would you, well, have you ever like come upon a, a, a come upon a find like this where it's just like you're at a garage? I don't know if you go to garage sales down there in Hermosa, but you know, do you? <laughs> you know, have you? No, no, nothing, nothing quite that good. I found a really old comic book in my my grandpa's attic once. So that was kind of cool. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> that was fun. Now, you know, the thing I found actually interesting about reading reading some of this is there was. Uh, at one point, uh, the, the managing director for the Ansel Adams Rights Trust kind of made the point uh, with, with regards to, this was sort of before they knew where it came from, but with, with regards to the uh, alleged $200 million value. And, and he actually said that um, you know, the, the value of, of Adams' arts uh, is really in the printing technique, not the negative. He's, he literally yeah. said Ansel interpreted the negative very heavily, uh, each print is really the work of art, uh, and I thought it was really interesting. I and mean, we've always sort of known that uh, Adams was a uh, you know, king of post processing for the Absolutely. time. Absolutely, yeah. He's got a, he's quoted in his book The Negative as saying the the negative is the is you know like the score or the sheet music, and the print is the performance of that. Right? Yeah, and I'm you know I'm obviously a big believer in that. You know, coming from a background of doing a whole lot of image manipulation, and you know we still get people that. We'll look at pictures I've taken, and it's like, well, did you did you do anything to that? And I'm like, yeah, I did do stuff to it. You know, mm-hmm. I yeah. <laughs> I punched up the clouds a little bit, and I played with the color balance, and I mm-hmm. tossed a vignette on it, or whatever. You know, and I don't I don't apologize for that because I just want to make a cool looking picture. But I think there is a lot of people out there that sort of feel like if you if you touched it in Photoshop, you cheated, and and I'm not buying that at all, especially because, you know, what comes straight out of the camera is, is somebody's interpretation anyway. Absolutely. Joseph, uh, on this, this Ansel Adams thing, uh, what, what was your first reaction when you saw that, you know, apparently $200 million had slipped through your fingertips and, then, <laughs> then, and then finding out that it, you know, maybe did not? Yeah, well, like you, I, my first impression was, uh, gosh, i got to go to more garage sales. But, yeah, I mean, finding a treasure like that it would be amazing, Whether even if it's not Ansel Adams' work. Just to find some old photography like that on glass plates would be fantastic. That would be a really cool thing to have. Uh, just to you know, even hang on your own wall, maybe backlight them just as a kind of a, a work of art in itself, the fact that it's glass negatives and not something many, very many people do anymore. But, uh, yeah, you know, if it's not real, it's not real. That's unfortunate. And if it turns out that they knew it wasn't real and they did the whole thing as a promotional scam, then that's really unfortunate. But hopefully it all comes to light that it was legitimate. You know, they really thought it was and, and you know, it just turns out not to be. And that's unfortunate. Yeah, yeah this, is, this is also uh, sort of a, a good um, sort of learning or teaching point uh, to add metadata to your digital files because uh, obviously this stuff was unidentified. I had a conversation with Joseph earlier. I have been to flea markets where there's been boxes of images that were very old. <coughs> Excuse me. And it's, you know, these beautiful images, but there's no information with them. Mm-hmm. And without the information, you don't know anything about, you know, where they were taken, who the people are. And in a sense, the, the pictures are not valuable because you really don't know, you know, what they are. And I think that, um, you know, when we process our stuff, 
it's really important that we do kind of identify stuff because we, we hope that our images, particularly, you know, the ones that are important to us, family, et cetera, will, will endure long after us. And uh, you want to make sure that they're identified. And uh, so that's one of the lessons. I, I don't know what they could have done. I mean, you'd think uh, there'd be a place to add metadata uh, in the analog fashion with this find, um, uh, you know, identifying these images. So that's it. You bring up a good point, Steve. So what do you, what do, you do in that circumstance? Say you're walking down your street and there's a garage sale and there's a box of prints in there and they're unidentified, but they're, they're wonderful looking prints. Do you, you know, hide, and you want to grab them or even if they're negative, say you, you, there's a box of negatives, you grab them and there's, you know, you make some prints from them. And like Ron was saying, you digitally interpret what you want those prints to look like. Whose image is it at the end? Is Especially if the person that you bought those negatives from has no idea where they came from. And then you take the negatives back to and you get them scanned in, you bring them into Lightroom, Aperture, Photoshop, whatever, and you create these beautiful images out of them, print them. Who who do you say created the image? Well, that's a, a really good good uh, question. I think that uh, the answer lies in someone coming forward and saying they're the original owner and having an intimate knowledge of what the originals and who the originals um, portray and who took the pictures. Yeah. But I think you know it, it gets into this whole transformative nature where um, uh, Shepard Ferry you know took that press conference shot Mm -hmm. taken by Manny, and I can't remember his last name, the AP photographer, and transformed it into that iconic Obama image and and profited quite a bit from it without um, ever uh, crediting the original photographer. So it's it's a gray area, and you know it's yours until you get sued and lose the case, basically. Wow. But uh, you know when you find these images, these beautiful images, I mean you can appreciate them just on the purely uh, aesthetic level when you see these images. But it's there's something sad about uh, you know the the archive of a family you know ending up in a in a in a in a flea market without any information and. In a sense, uh, in the modern age, anyway, they they get kind of wiped out. The whole family history. Yeah, there needs to be a place online where you know you can you can upload orphaned images like that, and you know people can come claim them or something. That'd be that'd be interesting. Ideas for the Twip universe. All right, guys. Story, story number two. Sinar has created. This is an interesting story because I never thought about this. Um, they've created an adapter to allow you to mount digital SLRs as digital backs to their like view camera lenses so you could basically stick on your nikon or canon onto the back or use a use one of the view camera tilt and shift mechanisms with a small 35 millimeter uh camera now this is interesting because i know these backs typically go for much more than i can afford in terms of (laughs) back. i mean even the lenses for these things are insanely and the the mounts all this stuff this is like real tilt shift product photography where you're getting you know the shot of a leaf with the water dropping off of it perfect inside of a studio environment um but now you can do this with a relatively inexpensive digital slr back which is multiple multi-purpose do you think this make joseph do you you think this makes sense to to do this or should people that are in this area looking at using view cameras should they have enough money to just go buy a regular digital back for that thing <laughs> oh no! I have, should have enough money. We should all have enough money to do that. Um, <laughs> but if you're shooting that kind of photography, one job presumably could pay for the bag. Is what I'm saying. Well, there's always rentals as well. But um, yeah, it's interesting. I'd have to see what you're getting out of this that you're not going to get out of a standard tilt shift, uh, you know, tilt shift lens for your DSLR. 
part of going with the big backs is the larger sensor size, right? You, I mean, if you go, you know, forget about digital, let's just go to film. If you're shooting with a four by five back, that's a big negative that you're shooting with. And these digital backs, the really expensive ones, do have very large sensors, larger than what you get out of a DSLR. So that's a big part of it. So you're obviously not working around that. So basically, it's an interesting marketing spin. Signers created a thing where they're calling your camera a back as opposed to saying, we've created a lens that you can put on your DSLR. They've stated, they're saying that you, know, you can now put your DSLR on as a back. It's yeah. you know, half a dozen of one, right? It's just, it's the same thing. But... I don't know that you know how much more you're going to get than you'd get out of uh, out of a regular tilt shift lens. It, for the macro stuff, of course, you'd be able to stretch the bellows way out and get extreme, extreme macro photography. Yep, that's a bit different. That's that could be interesting. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd have to see them side by side and you know really compare the solutions. Ron Brinkman, what do you what do you think about that? Are you do you think this makes sense for photographers to to Start going down this path? I I think something like this may make sense. Uh, I know Alex and I came across uh, some company at uh, PMA earlier this year that made um, sort of precision machine bellows where you could actually take your existing Canon lenses and put them on a bellows out in front of your uh, DSLR and uh, and do some of that, you know, either tilt shift or macro stuff. And so, I mean, I can certainly see having some sort of intermediate object that serves this purpose. could be a useful thing if the price isn't too high. What's the price point on this thing? I didn't see what it was. Oh, I did not see it. I didn't see a dollar sign in there. Yeah, you know, for me, it's kind of like, I mean, there are lenses that do a lot of the same sort of thing. So where's the, you know, it's really just a cost trade-off. Is it cheaper to get this, and is it going to be more or less convenient? I mean, it sounds like it's a very well-engineered, uh, complete kind of solution. But for me, boy, it's a really specific thing that I don't have really any use for, I don't think. I suppose if you had a bunch of existing uh, lenses that could be put on this and you wanted to get some value out of them, then it would make sense. But it doesn't feel like as a uh, solution that you, you would go out and buy from scratch without having some other sort of mitigating circumstances for why you'd need it. Yeah, Steve, are you, yeah. you going to run out and get one of these and start doing photojournalism well, <laughs> with a swing tilt? <laughs> you know, I, I just wanted to add, I mean, I remember uh, a time way back when, uh, before digital, when as a young professional photographer getting into the business, I mean, I was more interested in documentary and using small format cameras. But there was kind of a hierarchy in the professional world. And there were those that used medium format. And then there were those high-end advertising and fashion people that would use these view cameras. And mm-hmm. the knowledge that you were, you were required to know to be able to really master these cameras um, was something that uh, only an elite few relative to the whole number of professionals out there were pursuing. And, you know, again, like Ron says, it's a very limited market. But in a way, uh, we've lost a lot of that kind of craft and, and sort of the, the old school craft. I think that the, the view camera offers much more flexibility if you know how to use it than a, a tilt shift lens will. Uh, mostly a tilt shift lens is is fine for you know ninety four percent of the photographers out there, mm-hmm. but those that are working on high end uh, advertising campaigns, photographing small objects, photographing uh, you know those kinds of things, uh, they might they might uh, you know be interested in this. It's interesting because you know I was looking at um, I saw this thing come across my desk that the the this month's issue of Macworld magazine was photographed with an iPhone 4. It's a picture of an iPhone 4 photographed with an iPhone 4. So it just, you know, I know in the days of old, that would have been 
anything that was going to go in the front of a magazine, especially if it was product photography, typically would have been taken with either a medium medium format or a uh, large format camera like the ones we're talking about. So it's interesting how things are sort of converging down. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I saw that and it looked as though uh, the iPhone 4 shoot was a little more complex than most of us when we use our, our iPhone to take pictures. <laughs> Wait, did you see the lattice work yeah. of gear around that little thing? <laughs> exactly, exactly. But the bottom line is, and I'm, I'm looking for the cover. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm very curious to see uh, how it looks, you know, and I'm sure it looks great. So, yeah. uh, well, yeah, apparently kind of he, he did all the post-processing in the camera or in the phone as well and retouching. So should be pretty interesting. But you know what, guys? Um, I know we, we've got some other notes in the, here that I was going to talk about, but uh, one thing that I, we haven't talked about on the show recently is just, you know, we talk about how to get all these images. We talk about video ad nauseum and, and photography and traveling and all this stuff. But what we don't touch on a lot is um, what do you do with those images once you get them? You know, once they're once you're on your hard drive and then what happens if you get hit with a catastrophe like one of those like something happens to those images. Um, a friend of mine, a friend of, of TWIP, Chris Marquart is a photographer who also has a podcast called Tips from the Top Floor. It's a very famous podcast. In fact, if you search for photography in iTunes, um, right next to TWIP, you'll see Tips from the Top Floor. So uh, Chris, I was just talking to him earlier, and he had a, a pretty interesting adventure, is it, or in the process of having a pretty interesting adventure with regard to coming back from the States. He's, going, he's in Germany right now. Um, and maybe losing all of the images <laughs> that, he, that he took while he was here. Now that I'm laughing at him, but it's, a, it's an interesting story. So he's agreed to come on for a quick minute to explain it, what happened to us. So I'm going to try to bring him in live right now through the magic of Skype. So let's see if I can get him. Let's see if he'll pick up. Hello. Mr. Marquard, how you doing? Hey, Frederick, how are you? I'm doing great. Hey, I thought I'd give it a shot and, and call you up to, uh, we, by the way, you're live, or live to disc <laughs> no. on This Week in Photo. And <laughs> so don't say anything that, you know, you don't want published to the TWIP listening audience. <laughs> but oh, you're, I'm, you're I'm on, anyway. <laughs> you're on here with Ron Brinkman, Joseph Lenasky, and Steve Simon. And I was just telling the folks that you recently returned back to Germany after coming out here to do some stuff with Leo Laporte and you led a workshop and all that. And now you're back in Germany trying to recover the images <laughs> that you took <laughs> while you were here. So I thought we'd just have a quick segment to chat about what you're doing to bring that stuff back. So, you, so you're getting me live on the show to tell the world about my mishap? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Thank you so I, much. Hey, no. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, sure. Nice to meet you guys. Um, so, okay, what happened? <laughs> well, um, I did something that you shouldn't do. I took pictures, put them on the laptop, and um, didn't back up. Uh-oh. So, yeah, uh-oh, exactly. So... Uh, what happened is on upon return, it's a MacBook Pro. It's like three years old, and it's it's okay. But uh, I I think it just didn't really take the heat well because um, not in San Francisco, but I did two workshops. I did one in uh, New York, and there was this huge big heat wave. So I think there was quite some heat in there, and um, the one in San Francisco was was cool. But then when I came home. The hard drive stopped working, Ugh. and that's 
I guess kind of the thing that you don't want to have happen. So what are you doing now? So you, the, when you say it stopped working, you tried to boot up the MacBook and you got the sad Mac there, or or what happened? I got nothing. So so the MacBook came up with a gray screen and it didn't find a boot drive. Nothing. So okay. basically, so then, I, then what? What did you do? So so just to, for educational purposes for the Twip listeners, <laughs> if this should happen to you, what was Chris Marquardt's next step after he you know got over the horror of his images maybe gone? Well, okay, so so I'm 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 the photographer, I'm the instructor, I'm lots of things, and now I'm the IT guy. So I'm basically, um, yeah, hooking. I basically hooked up the hard disk. I re, I removed the hard disk. You don't really necessarily have to do this, but um, that laptop has traveled so far all over the world that there is an issue with the DVD drive. So I can't even boot off the DVD drive. Oh. So I basically had to take it apart, take the hard drive out. And which I which I know how to do because I've done it before to to swap the hard drive for a bigger one, and that is now hooked up to a Mac Pro that runs Disk Warrior. So if you're on a Mac and you have disk issues, Disk Warrior is kind of the I'd say the, the go-to solution for me. And that is if it that, works if it works after you finish recovering because you're in the process of recovery right now, right? Well, the, the, exactly. The thing is that well, Disk Warrior scans the disk, or it did scan the disk, and it found all sorts of errors, and it told me that it could fix them all, but it can't write them back onto the disk because the disk has a hardware issue. So, <laughs> what it what it does, it has this nice this nice thing. It gives you a virtual view at your disk. It basically creates. Um, a table of contents in memory, and then it lets you browse that as if it were a disk. So you're looking at a virtual table of contents that's based on what it fixed, but the actual disk is the broken disk that is now being accessed when you look at things. And what I'm now doing, and then it, and it's, it's looking fine, but obviously as the hard drive has an issue, um, I'm now in the process of pulling everything off that hard drive as fast as I can or as fast as the computer allows me to do, which is kind of slow because the hard drive is a 500 gigabyte hard drive and I'm doing this over a USB 2 um, oh. connection. <laughs> oh, no. So it has been added for nah, four, five hours now and it's two thirds <laughs> through. And so... <laughs> It's kind of late here, so I'm probably going to go to bed and just hope <laughs> that when I return in the morning, everything will be fine. Wow. Chris, uh, good luck to you. I, I just was going to ask, um, if you can go back in time, what moves would you make differently? What would you, what would you do? Obviously, I, I think you're going to say the obvious, but what would you do? <laughs> well, the, the obvious thing is, and, and I, actually, I actually have a time machine backup set up on the machine. I have an external disk that I do a time machine backup to. So all I do is I hook that disk up every now and then, like every couple of days, and have uh, Mac OS backup to that disk. And that is perfectly fine. That just I just didn't have that disk with me in the U.S. for some silly reason. So um, that's the first thing I would do if, if I get a new system. And actually, after this, that is the next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to make sure that time machine backup is running perfectly. Wow. Now Joseph, you you travel a lot. Have you have you what's your flow for when you're when you're traveling and you're doing say a client job and you can't lose the photos? What how do you prevent something like what or having to spend the time like Chris is spending right now when you get back? Sure, multiple drives and I just mirror everything. The the content that comes off the cameras goes on to external drives and then those get mirrored. Um and now actually in Aperture it's even easier. You've got a uh, the ability to 
on import have it go to two separate drives simultaneously. So I'm definitely taking advantage of that. But yeah, the pictures don't come off of the card until there's at least two, preferably three copies, kind of depending on how important this job may be. Um, and then, of course, I try to push stuff up to the cloud. But as we've discussed before, when you're on the road relying on a fast enough internet connection to get those you know, 10, 20, 30 gigabytes of new data up online is probably not very realistic. So, yeah, multiple hard drives in my bag are definitely uh, definitely critical. And and Ron, Ron, do you do you echo that? Is that the uh, is that the uh, point? Oh, I I can tell stories <laughs> <laughs> of all the bits that you've lost. <laughs> well, no, I mean specifically about this trip to Venezuela. I, oh, uh, tell I, us. I, well, I mean, so I made the decision to to not bring a computer with me. Uh, you know, too much of a hassle, too much weight, traveling light, and uh, just didn't want to have you know one more thing that was going to get ripped off. So. Uh, all I what I did bring with me uh, was uh, just a small portable hard drive, and the plan had been to stop at internet cafes and hopefully at certain hotels and places where we'd stay that would have computers, and try to download my cards from the uh, you know from the photos from the cards to this backup uh, hard drive, um, which kind of worked until the backup hard drive died. So then I was back to, but you know I, I never removed anything from the cards. So fortunately, everything made it back from that. But then the other issue I ran into, and this was just sort of mind-bogglingly ridiculous, is I had bought, um, I brought, you know, uh, four, in, in terms of my compact flash card, I brought four cards with me, uh, two 2 gigs, uh, an 8 gig, and then I bought a new 16 gig, thinking, all right, that should be plenty for a couple weeks of traveling. Um, and so the first day out, we were at this great little location with some cool little waterfalls and all that. I took a lot of pictures on the 16 gig card, and I guess take a step back. Canon has this this feature where uh, the menu item that you last chose stays there as the default thing when you hit menu again. Mm-hmm. Oh, I've I've been there, guys. <laughs> yeah. So it turns out the thing I did before I left on my trip was reformat all of these cards, and uh, so I took pictures all day and then tossed my camera in my bag. And I generally don't turn the camera off, which is probably a bad plan, but I like to have it nice and ready when I go. But I get back and I realize there are no photos on the camera. So somehow the camera, the menu item went to format. And then, but I mean, it's ridiculous because the menu item went to format. The dial in back had to be turned one turn to go to the accept. And then the button had to be pressed to hit OK. But it's the only thing that could have happened. So basically that first day's worth of photos, and there was a lot of good stuff on there, was reformatted and deleted from the card. Uh, and uh, overwritten? Did you, did you shoot over well, it? So here's the thing. I only shot a couple of shots over it, and then I realized, okay, I, can't, I know I can recover these things. I've got a, there's a, several different tools out there, but I use one called Photo Rescue on the Mac that I was almost positive would be able to find those cards on a reform, those photos on a reformatted card if I had a Mac with me. Uh, and you certainly don't find a Mac anywhere in South America. So um, what I had to do was take that 16-gig card and sort of uh, uh, put it into quarantine uh, and just give up on having that extra 16 gigs and hope I, the rest of the cards are going to be enough. And when I did get back to L.A. and was able to plug it in, I was able to recover pretty much everything that had been shot on that first day. But, okay. um, you know, it's <laughs> you try. I mean, I, I thought I was being reasonably good with a couple of different options. And with a backup, I... But I, I usually out here in the studio, I have like mirror discs and two backup backups and everything. I was lucky that the that the photos I took on the trip and on on those workshops were not like for a paid customer. So um, basically, they were my private photos. There's nothing on there that really will kill me if it's lost. But I'd still love to have them back. So 
So yeah. you'll crossed. have to keep us. You'll have to keep us posted um, as to how this adventure plays out, Chris. Because totally, <laughs> I'm interested. I'm interested. I mean, luckily there wasn't. It wasn't like a, a job, you know, that you you, know, no. you were going to lose revenue on. These are these are mostly vacation photos, kind of right. And and for jobs, I certainly have the hard drives with me, and right. I certainly do my backups. Of course, <laughs> yeah. So you are a pro in jobs, but you know, we always, you know, when it's when it's our own stuff and we don't care that much, you know, we exactly, yeah, yeah. Guys, I just wanted to to add to that whole workflow idea. You know, I just got involved with the Sandisk Extreme team, which for me means that I I get to to have a few extra cards to play with. But my new idea for workflow, because I, uh, like Chris and Ron, have been in situations where you know I've, I was lucky that uh, things worked out, that um, I want to have enough compact flash cards or SD cards, whatever your camera takes, to, to last the entire job or the duration of the trip. Because often, even though I'm, let's say, staying at a hotel and I'll back up everything from my laptop disk to another drive and to another drive, um, and sometimes I will have a, a drive with me at all times, I like the idea of having those compact flashcards in my pocket. I can carry my entire shoot with me. So if something happens at the hotel, if I was staying in a place where Ron was staying in Venezuela and something exactly. goes wrong, uh, you know, I'll have my whole shoot in my pocket. Or if I get mugged in the street, I'll have it back in the hotel. So from a professional level, it's just one more. And now that the cards have come down in price and, you know, 16 gig cards, I mean, I trust the, the larger uh, cards now because you know really they're the strongest link in the chain. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea of having my entire shoot in a in my pocket uh, feels good, and you can carry your drive with you. But um, you know it's it's got moving parts unless it's moving an SSD parts, drive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so so I, it just makes sense to me um, from here on in to to have enough. Uh, you know, I learned when traveling in Africa always take twice as much water as you think you'll need. And I think that uh, when it comes to compact flash or SD, depending on what you're using, um, have more than you, you, you need for the entire trip and uh, have those as a backup because, you know, your equipment could be replaced. All the other stuff can be replaced. But as, as Chris is finding out, but maybe won't find out because he'll recover everything, um, well, uh, you know, those are, the, those are the things that are most important. Yeah, I, t- I totally agree with the, you know, keep, keep my compact flash cards and my SD cards for my little point and shoot. The ones that I had finished filling up, they were on my body all the time because, you know, that's the only real safe place to have them, not back in the hotel room and you know, or even in your bag is sort of questionable because that's the kind of thing somebody will grab. Yeah, that, that was actually my, my workflow um, in April, May. I spent about a month in Tibet. And I catered for enough compact flash memory to not have to resort to anything but the flashcards. So I, I took I don't know, 120 gigs in wow. compact flash with me. And all actually, I, I I'm not there yet to trust the 16 gig cards. So all of those were four gig cards. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's a, it's interesting, and and I always ask folks that you know people that shoot volumes of of images particularly wedding photographers because they they tend to shoot a lot and they you know with very little margin for error because you can't really lose any shots there now do you do they trust this do they want all their eggs in one basket and trust the larger cards because they're getting bigger or do you split it up and then risk missing shots because you're swapping cards you know which is the best on on the other hand i see the, the the tools are so good now the recovery tools so even if you uh if if a 16 gig card fails um there's a very high chance that you can recover stuff from that yeah 
And 16 yeah. gig cards aren't as big as they used to be either because now they're you know, filling it up true. faster. Yeah, with larger, well, larger absolutely. images. Yeah. Oh, well, you know. Well, good luck, Chris. It's, uh, Thank you. I'm sure, Thank you. I'm sure you'll recover everything and keep us posted. Where, I'll keep you posted. Where Where can people find and um, keep up with you? Where your Where's your site and where's your podcast and all that good stuff? Oh, the easiest is to go to chrismarquardt.com, which is probably the hardest to spell, but that's kind of the central <laughs> location. Um, you can find that at, um, how do I spell it? Chris, M-A-R-Q-U-A-R-D-T.com. Got it. Got it. And we'll link to it from the show notes yeah. from this post, too. All right, cool. Chris. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for uh, letting us interrupt you. What time is it over there right now? Um, it's midnight. It's midnight, and it's only 3 it's o'clock midnight. here. So <laughs> thank you. Right. Thanks for staying up. I appreciate it. Sure. All right. Good take luck. care, Chris. All right. That was Chris Marquardt, a special guest. This is the first time we ever did a uh, a special inserted guest live on the show. I think we'll. That was very cool. Isn't that cool? I think we'll. You know, we're going to do that more because I I sent out that survey that I mentioned before, and some of the a lot of the feedback came back was people though they like the interviews that we insert they like it better when we have like the round table and we can all ask them questions yeah. rather than just little old me asking questions so yeah, it's exciting when you're phoning live and you know you you don't know if they're going to be home and all this kind of stuff although <laughs> yeah, exactly. i think most people sort of think that maybe you've talked to him beforehand yes which i did i did but through the magic of skype i did call him before <laughs> and actually he was going to be on the show um but you know for some reason things got shuffled around and he couldn't be on so we're going to have him on in upcoming weeks as a as a kind of regular reoccurring guest um he'll come on and talk photography since he happens to know a thing or two about the topic so um all right guys let's move on it's time for the Q&A segment. Every week, our producers scour the TWIP forums at thisweekinphoto.com forward slash forum to find the best questions for us to answer on the show. And we've got a couple of good ones. The first one is targeted at you, Steve Simon. You want to read this one? Sure. Um, Lisa Solunko um, has questions regarding model releases in relation to her projects. And she, she points out that uh, I've done a few f- uh, photography books that have been published uh, with various publishers. But she's asking, um, you know, even if she did a blur book or, or um, went through a traditional publisher, uh, does she need model releases for people, animals, property, etc. for the images? Um, uh, and she said, for the sake of charity, um, you know, the, I have, I, I will answer the question by saying to Lisa that I have never got a model release from anybody. And fortunately, I have never been sued or have ever encountered any trouble, nor have my commercial publishers ever insisted it, insisted on it. Um, I think that, uh, the law is always moving like, uh, boats on the water and uh, it's always best if you can have model releases, of course. But imagine, you know, you're Cartier-Bresson and you're moving in and out of a crowded street and you're photographing on the street. Uh, it's really impossible to get a model release from everyone recognizable in the image. Um, you can do what you can and you know, you, think, you sometimes think, oh, that's the picture, so I better get model releases from that person. Um, and, and that's probably a good idea if you're so inclined. Um, the bottom line is if you're going to have a book published that is considered to be documentary or journalistic, um, still today you don't really need a model release. Even though that book might be a commercial endeavor 
and you might make money. And we've had this you know, discussion a little bit before. But it's always changing. And certainly if you have the opportunity to get a model release, that would probably be a good idea. I know that many documentary photographers make an effort to get a model release. It's just that much easier um, even to use them in a journalistic way. Yeah. And there have, have been situations where people have gotten into trouble and have been sued, ironically, in France uh, for a time. It, it was illegal to kind of shoot in the street because one person saw an image of themselves and sued and actually won. So, you know, the, the short answer is, uh, and especially for charity, I, I don't think it's necessary. But at the same time, um, you want to, if it's at all possible, and I would always try and get information with my subjects and maybe get in touch with them or email them if if they wanted an image um you know to, to get a model release is, is not a bad idea but it's it's not absolutely necessary although See that that that's very interesting because I, I always wondered that you know because if you, yeah i wasn't expecting that answer neither actually. was i because i i think like my knee-jerk reaction is if you're going to use you're going to make a penny off of this thing everybody that's recognizable in the photo you must have you know, been released to use the image, which makes things, I would think, Steve, which is why this is so interesting. Like when you travel to Africa and you do your, your photojournalistic missions over there and you do all these shots and you got, you know, the woman that's, you know, you got a long lens, you don't want to interrupt the scene. You got the woman who doesn't speak any, know what you're saying and you're shooting pictures of her with her child. Um, do you then, after you get the shot, walk up to her with a pen and a piece of paper or, you well, know, you know and, say, and, can and you, what do you sure, do? I mean, you can you can get the model release, but then again, uh, you know, if it ever came to it, the model release would be challenged because if the model release is in English and someone signs it, uh, you know, in a, in a in a court, uh, you know, the obvious uh, would be that uh, well, this person may have signed it, but obviously they, she didn't really understand what it was, etc. There have been many cases, you know, in the art world, and there, I we've talked about this, I'm sure, on the show where. There was uh, Philip de Cordia, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name, a uh, well-known art photographer. Uh, his prints sell upwards of $10,000. And, you know, he had set up uh, a camera in Times Square with a flash that would photograph kind of random passers-by. And as it happened, uh, one of the photos ended up in the show uh, of, a, of a rabbi uh, from Brooklyn who uh, saw his image and said, hey, where, where did this come from? I didn't give any permission. Sued the photographer. And the judge, uh, because, you know, these, these prints, these pictures were used for, for invitations to the show. And, and those prints were sold for $10,000. And, and um, he lost because the judge threw it out of court saying this is an art piece. It's artistic expression and license. And, and it went the photographer's way. Um, that's kind of the way it happens for documentary and journalistic work. But... It's always changing. And as we know, uh, you know, in places like England where you're hearing there's a lot more scrutiny of photographers and photography, uh, it's always better to have a model release. But, but I, haven't, I just haven't been able to bring myself you know, to be in situations where you know, you're, you're meeting with people and you're photographing and, and then you ask them to, to sign this thing that basically gives everything away. There's still – it's probably not smart – and I know a lot of documentary photographers and a lot of NGOs when they, they require um, uh, model releases because those images are being used for, in quotations, you know, advertising uh, of those NGOs to, to promote uh, giving, etc. But uh, it's an it's a ever-changing gray area. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, have you ever found yourself in a situation where someone was challenging an image in one of your books, Steve, where you you didn't have the model release or did have it? Uh, fortunately, no, that hasn't happened uh, yet. I I kind of expect that it might, and I'll I'll deal with it then. But you know, my motivation and intent has always been above board, and I'm, I'm never out to exploit situations. Uh, uh, but it, you know, it, it could happen for sure. So, so you know, it hasn't happened yet. I hope it doesn't. But uh, and in future, in, in more controlled situations, I, I probably will uh, bring out model releases. I just haven't uh, up until this point. Wow. All right. Question number two is up, Joseph. I, I think I'll throw this one to you. You want to take it? Sure thing. So Oliver Shoulder wants to know. He says, "I'm at the beach using a Canon T2i and a 50 mil and 20 to 135 mostly." When I walk outside, my lenses totally fog up. It's insane, and I've never had this problem before. I usually wipe off the fog with my shirt. Also, what about the filters? Can they fog up instead of my lens? Can this fog damage the lenses like my 18 to 55? Um, they are not water sealed. What should I do? So my first response is he's saying this didn't – it sounds like he's saying this didn't used to happen, but really this is, uh, this is happening because of the humidity outside. He's got to be in a more humid area. Uh, I was just in Florida a few weeks ago and stepping outside in the lovely uh, 120% humidity that is Florida – the lens is fogged up instantly. And really all you can do is wait. Just let your gear acclimate to that environment. You shouldn't wipe it off because, I mean, you can if you really need to. You can wipe it off, but there's really no need to. It will go away on its own. You're wiping around the water. You're risking scratching something unless you've got a really good uh, cleaning tissue. And even that, it's always a risk. So I would say just let your gear get used to the temperature, get used to the climate before you start shooting, which does mean planning ahead. You do need to go outside and open up your gear bag and kind of let everything acclimate. What you don't want to do is try switching lenses during that time. Even though your camera may not be water sealed, it's, uh, chances are the humidity will not get inside to the sensor. But if you take that lens off, then it most certainly will. And then you have to wait even longer for the fog to clear off of that as well. So it, uh, you know, all you can do is just sit and wait. It's just a common problem when you're dealing with humidity. You'll run into the same thing if you're shooting in the snow, for example, and you go in and out of a heated car into the snow. And we've talked about that on the show before. And I've said during that time, you know, keep your coat and gloves on and just roll down the window in the car. Because if you're going back and forth, you're going to get the fog in the lens and you're not going to be able to get it off. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Jason, uh, can I just add something to that? Joseph? Sure, just because. You know, I lived in Edmonton, Alberta for 10 years, and I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's really cold there. And, and one of the things, and, you know, I wouldn't expect you to know this necessarily in California, but one of the things that <laughs> we would do is if you wrap your camera in an airtight plastic bag, the theory is that, and you bring it in, you're changing into a different temperature area, condensation will form outside the bag and not inside the camera. Now, it, it doesn't mean that you can immediately open up the bag and start shooting, but it means that the time you have to wait will be cut down considerably. And the other thing that I just wanted to – I just came across this the other day. Um, Nikon uh, is distributing, probably not manufacturing, something called Fog Eliminator. And if you, if you, if you Google Fog Eliminator and Nikon, you'll see it's an anti-fog cloth. Um, and they say that it's a breakthrough dry compound stops condensation from forming on lens surfaces. I think I, now that I've seen this thing, I'm going to get it. I mean, it's cheap. It's like five bucks, and it's a it's a cloth that will apparently, uh, and it's made. You know, it's distributed by Nikon for lenses. So I mean, it's obviously safe. I mean, we've we, I've seen this like in Alberta for 
for your windshield, but you wouldn't want to put on your lens. But this, this Nikon item, obviously is made for, for camera users. So, so there's a couple of ideas. That's cool. Yeah, I, I think I, that you couldn't, couldn't hurt to put that in your bag, right? Absolutely. All right, awesome. All right, Mr. Ron Brinkman, question number three from Ender78 is coming to you. You want to take it? Uh, I will read it. I'm not sure I have a great answer, but he says, I live in Toronto and like to attend a week or so long photography workshop in Utah and or Arizona sometime before the end of this year. Can you guys recommend any colleagues that might do workshops in the area? Would you also provide guidelines on how to pick a seminar slash workshop? And what are the questions to ask a tour operator to help ensure a good experience? I'm an advanced amateur. Um, so I don't know any specific uh, people that do tours there. I would say that you know, chances are good if you ask uh, the tour guides that you're going to be dealing with or the places you're going to be staying, they probably have some idea. It's got to be a really hard thing, though, to figure out if they're any good or not. So, you know, maybe this is something that we can kind of toss out to our listeners as well uh, and put something up on the website so we can get some feedback on that. I don't know. Do you guys know of anybody that's going to, that is in that area? You know, I, I do not, but yeah, I think you're, you're right. That's a, that's a good, that's some good fodder for the website, for the forums. And we'll post a topic in there for that. Do you, Steve? Uh, yeah, I don't know anyone specifically, but certainly, um, you know, if you, if you, if you, find a photographer that you like their work and then you google sort of the comments uh from workshop participants uh and even maybe contact a few because chances are there there are comment sections on the photographer's webpage etc and and see what their experience uh is um so uh i'm i'm sure there'll be uh some some and and you know i know you know i know toronto a little bit and i know there's all kinds of continuing ed courses and workshops that are available one place i know that i would look into it's called picto p i k t o i believe and and he'll, he'll or she she or he will will be able to find it it's in toronto <clears throat> excuse me and they they run workshops all the time and if if they see what's coming up and if there's a photographer that does the kind of work that this person wants to pursue uh, that might be one to investigate, and it's close to home. Cool. Or we can just talk Frederick into doing a workshop in Utah sometime toward the end of the year. <laughs> you know, we should do that, you know, because, you know, you, you, you. you joke about that, but Rich Leg, who has been on the show, uh, runs a, a gigantic sort of user group out there and is kind of prolific in the Utah or in the photography scene in general and has hinted that he would like to do a workshop with the This Week in Photography crew. So that may happen. All right, um, guys, we're, we're at the Pick of the Week time. And um, just to remind folks who may not be familiar with the Picks of the Week, this is when we each, gifts give, each guest gives their Pick of the Week. And this pick can be software, it can be hardware, it can be gear, it can be a workshop, it can, whatever, as long as it's related to photography. So first up, I'm going to throw it at Joseph. Joseph, what's your pick? So I was in Sammy's the other day, which is always a bad idea, and poking around to see what's what. And it's kind of funny. They have this whole big display dedicated to lamography, photography through cheap plastic lenses. And they have a little Holga 120N for all of $32, a little plastic camera. And I realized I was just in China, and I probably could have bought the exact same thing for about $0.32. Cents, but um, reason got the better of me, and I bought it. So I have a little... Holga 120 film camera, plastic lens, plastic body, plastic everything that I am going to be taking on this little road show across the country, this little uh, cross-country drive. A couple of uh, rolls of 
Ilford 400 120-roll film, and we'll see what happens. But for 30 bucks to get a plastic lens camera like that, it just seems like way too much fun. you got to do it. So off we go. That's very cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in seeing those because the, the whole mystery or, or romance of those cameras is – they're uncontrollable in a lot of ways, right? right? And every shot is going to be different and you might have a light leak that's going to do something to it. And plus you got to find a place to get the film process, right? (laughs) Yeah. You know, so I actually asked at Sammy's about that. They'll, uh, they'll process and scan and I can mail it to them. So I may end up just doing that, dropping it in the mail to them. And I think it was, I want to say it was like seven or $8 for the processing and about the same for a low res scan of all the images. And then any one image that you want to get scanned at higher res, you can have that done as well. Of course. Very cool. All right. Thanks a lot, Joseph. Steve Simon, what's your pick of the week? Well, I didn't have one until I mentioned the Nikon Fog Eliminator, so that would be my, <laughs> my pick of the week. Uh, and I'm just reading from the, the, uh, the copy here. They're reusable, individually wrapped wipes impregnated. I don't know if that's the right word. With a breakthrough anti-fog compound that stops condensation from forming on lens surfaces, regardless of the reason, drastic temperatures, etc., um, and then in looking at the comments, uh, one of them one of them says, it's summer here, it's extremely humid. The, min- the minute I pick up the camera, walks outside, everything is a blur. One good wipe, and I'm usually good for uh, more than one trip outside, can't live without them. And another person says, these cloths only work part-time in extreme conditions. There is still some fogging, but it's better than nothing. So, I mean, there's really nothing I've seen um, like this and we've all i guess experienced the you know condensation so it certainly wouldn't hurt and you know it's eight bucks for three pack and they're reusable so sounds like a a a good thing to have in your bag so that's my pick awesome that's a very good pick and i would assume that even though it's called the nikon fog eliminator it does eliminate canon fog and sony fog (laughs) and olympus fog as well melt the multi-coating off (laughs) canon lenses (laughs) some sort of special molecular thing in there that counteracts canon's clarity (laughs) all right mr ron brinkman what's your pick so my pick is a new website that I've just discovered. I guess it's been going for a while, but I am absolutely loving it. It's called uh, Iconic Photos. It's iconicphotos.wordpress.com. Uh, and what he does is he picks you know photos that are iconic, that have been somehow sort of captured the public's imagination over the years and just sort of dissects what, how they came about, the news behind it and everything. And it's, it's amazing how many photos that he's gone through in there. And, and it's just really... It's just fascinating. Any student of photography should spend some time on here. I lost a few hours diving into it. Um, you know, it, not only just the photos that are really, really famous, but ones that are sort of on the edge of your consciousness, something that you've probably seen a few times, and so they have this interesting kind of uh, resonance with you, but you're not quite sure what the story is behind them. Uh, I just I can't recommend it enough. I'm addicted to going through it and looking at it, and I think I've made my way through most of them now, and I'm eagerly awaiting you know, the new postings that come out. Um, so yeah, iconicphotos.wordpress.com. I should I should warn you there. You know, it's occasionally uh, some nudes on there. I say that because the one that's up right now is uh, an artistic nude. But you know, there's all kinds of mostly documentary kind of photos um, that really touch on historical events. Wow, very cool. And where's that at again? It's just iconicphotos.wordpress.com. All right, very cool. And for my pick, uh, I'm going to go with, and I may have mentioned this on the show before, but it's coming up next month, so I'm going to mention it again. Photoshop World is coming up at the Mandalay Resort or Mandalay Bay Resort and Casino in Vegas. 
and I go every year. I'm going to go again this year. I know Nicole's going. I don't know if any of you guys plan on heading out to Vegas for this. Uh, no. no. All right, I'm going, and I'm I'm going to hang out and and learn stuff at this. So I go every time, and you know it's always it's always exciting. Kelby and crew make a spectacle of themselves during the keynote, and it's it's always fun. It's a different kind of workshop. So I'm going to check that out. All right, uh, real quickly, it's time for this week's photo mission. Every week, we'll challenge you, the listener, to challenge yourself photographically. And each week, along with being recognized on the show, we may even award a prize like we did last week. This next mission could be yours if you choose to accept it. This last mission that we did was entitled uh, Dreams. And if you want to learn more about it, it's, uh, it's over on the forums in the photo missions area. And the winner for this last contest was Daniel P. Dunn, also known as the Full Metal Photographer. Um, and his was an interesting take on the word dreams. He decided to create a nightmarish image, so which is, I guess, technically a dream. So head over to the forums to check it out. You'll see his image right in there posted. All you got to do is go to thisweekinphoto.com forward slash forum and um, click on the photo missions Icon or link in there, and you'll you'll find the image. So congratulations, Daniel P. Dunn. For this next mission, next week's mission could be yours if you choose to accept it. And the title of this mission is Diffuse. Diffuse. That's the title. D-I-F-F-U-S-E. So create an image that relates to that theme and post it in the related forum on the site, which you'll find very easily at that same area I just mentioned, and you could win a prize. Daniel will win a book and he'll have a choice of several books from Peach Pit Press, and that'll be shipped out to him very shortly. All right, guys, we're at the end of the show. By uh, the way, by the way, Frederick, the new website it. look the new website looks awesome. I uh, I was out of the country whenever it went live, so I just wanted to say that uh, everybody should go check it out because it's pretty impressive. It's pretty cool. It's it's getting some momentum too. Thanks. It's uh, the uh, I'm looking in the forums right now. We've got we've got almost 500 members in the forums alone. So it's a uh, it's a crazy site. It's becoming. As I hoped it would be, it's becoming sort of a uh, a resource to the photography community that's member driven. It's not like you know people go to the forums waiting on us to to tell them things. It's members helping members, so it's a really good place for photographers to go in there and just sort of hang out. Plus, there's a lot of new things that are rolling out every couple of weeks on the site. New features, like for example, we launched the new um, the new This Week in Photo iPhone app a couple of weeks back, which is doing really well. So, so, so actually, as long as I'm questioning things what, yeah. what, what exactly is the deal with that because i also that also came out while i was gone i haven't downloaded it yet but it, 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 it's a method it's, for listening without using itunes that's or? exactly what it is so yeah it's a method for listening and communicating with the show without using itunes and being alerted to when the shows go live through you know the in-phone alerts um you can download the show directly so basically you have this app and we can let you know that hey it's ready to download you can play it right there you can go back in time and look at any of the other shows that we've posted and play them on demand directly from the app and we can send which we'll be doing in the coming weeks we can send out um little 
things with episodes. For example, if, say, Joseph came back and did a series of my trip across the United States wallpapers um, and he wanted to make a couple of them available to the show, we could push them out to everyone and they'd be, you know, iPhone wallpapers that you could then download and immediately have on your phone. So stuff like that. It's uh, it's very cool. It's just another way for folks to consume the show and also to help support the show because, you know, it helps us keep the lights on. Because, you know, the show is and always will be free, um, and you can download it from iTunes, you can download it from the site, you can get it from, you know, a million places. This is just another way for to make it a little bit easier for people to consume the show while helping us, you know, continue to do the show. And that's what it is. Got it. Awesome. All right. Um, Ron, where can people find you now that you're back in the United States? Uh, for now, I'm still on Twitter, uh, Ron Brinkman, and sometime soon I will be putting photos up to Flickr, uh, Ron Brinkman is my username there too, and probably putting a little post on my blog or two or three, which is digitalcomposting.com. Very cool. And Mr. Lenasky, where are you at online? I think this week I will direct people to the blog. This uh, no, not this week in photo that would be this site. To my uh, <laughs> confessions of a travel junkie, confessionsofatravelljunkie.com. Uh, once again, getting ready to head off on that drive across the country. And I'll just point it out again: you know, you can edit the map in there. And if you are going to be anywhere along that route, feel free to you know send me an email or uh, put a note on there, and maybe we can get together and grab a bike, grab a coffee, grab lunch, whatever. I'm on my own on that way across the country. It'd be fun to meet some of the listeners along the way. I think it's a great idea. Yeah, definitely support Joseph. He's going to be lonely on the road, so buy him a coffee at different <laughs> different points along his route so he can take a picture of you and blog it. <laughs> there you go. There you go. That'll right. be fun. Yeah, that'll, that'll be great. Yeah, definitely head over there to confessionsofatravelljunkie.com. And Mr. Steve Simon, where are you uh, at online? Twitter slash Steve Simon and uh, Maui Photo Festival. Since we talked about that earlier, I'll... I'll I'll mention that, and I'm hoping to have a blog. I know everyone's got a blog. I mean, I'm I'm the last guy to have a blog, but I'm hoping to have one uh, in the late fall. I'm I'm thinking about it now. I'm thinking about what I might possibly say, and uh, I'll keep people posted. Very cool. All right, we'll we'll talk about it once you get it up. Cool. Thanks, Steve. All right, and to keep up with everything in the TWIP universe, head over to thisweekinphoto.com. There you'll find links to our Facebook fan page, our Twitter account. And more. If you're looking for me, Frederick Van Johnson, you can check out my blog at frederickvan.com or follow me on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash frederickvan. And with that, it is time to take that lens cap off. Bandwidth for Twip is brought to you by Cashfly at C A C H E F L Y.com and Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial and 10% off your new account, go to squarespace.com forward slash TWIP. This Week in Photo is also supported by the TWIP podcast app for the iPhone and iPod Touch. It's available now on iTunes. For more information, head over to thisweekinphoto.com. This Week in Photo is a Pixelcore.tv production produced by Suzanne Llewellyn. With technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamakar. The show's content contributor is Eric Horton.